way that uh, GST will ever be part of our policy. Never, ever. Never, ever. It's dead. What we've just heard from the Leader of the Opposition and the Leader of the National Party are the most pathetic contributions I've heard in such a weighty debate in my 22 years here. Under cover of darkness, American, British and Saudi warplanes rained destruction on military targets across Iraq and Kuwait. I, I do not believe as an issue of principle that one generation can assume responsibility for the acts and deeds of an earlier generation. The national buyback of guns is expected to cost every Australian taxpayer up to $50. Hi, and welcome to Barely Getting By, the long 1990s. I'm Emma Shortis. And I'm Chloe Ward. So, Chloe, in our last episode, we spoke at length about the state of the world in the 1990s, and particularly the role of the United States and the United Nations. But this week, in episode five, we are returning home. Um, Unusually for us, we're going to focus on Australia and Australia in the 1990s, the land of our very comfortable middle-class childhoods. Um, And starting in Australia in the 1990s, of course, means starting really, you know, the decade opens with Hawke as Prime Minister, but he doesn't last very long. So we're going to focus, at least initially, on Paul Keating. That's right. And while it is very tempting to just turn this episode into a Keating Greatest Hits compilation, of which there are many on YouTube, I think it's quite rare for an Australian Prime Minister to have that sort of adoring fan base. We're quite keen to, I guess, get under the skin of the Keating Prime Ministership, which I found in researching this episode, I found that there's a lot of affection for Keating, but... You have to set that aside if you want to understand his troubled prime ministership and why in 1996 he was he lost an election to John Howard and set us up for 11 years of of liberal government. That's right. I think you're you're absolutely right. Of course, that there's a lot of affection for Keating and a lot of joy. You know, those those greatest hits compilations have got an awful lot of hits on YouTube. But let's talk about his legacy, Chloe. And and I think. A lot of his legacy lies in his economic management, if we could call it that. Yep, absolutely. So we, I am going to start with a very famous Keating quote where Keating described the recession of the early 1990s as the recession we had to have. So when Keating described that recession, which, you know, I have I have no memory at all of. I was a very small child at the time. Um... When he described that as the recession we had to have, he was saying that the recession was the price we had to pay for the economic reforms of the Hawke-Keating governments, in which he was the treasurer in the 1980s. One thing we have to understand about that recession is that it wasn't a black swan event like coronavirus today, which you know is obviously plunging Australia into you know into a really an economic cataclysm. It wasn't unknowable in advance. The question around that recession is whether it was the avoidable result of the Hawke-Keating government's economic reforms or if it was the the result of global forces out of their control. There's a really extensive historical debate, which I think we'll get into a little bit in one of the later instalments of this episode, but we'll absolutely link to some of the books and the research papers that have been published on that. Yeah, I mean, neither of us are um, economists and I don't think we're going to pretend to be or to wade into that debate. I think I'm really interested in in the kind of politics of it because as you said Chloe these extensive economic reforms were part of the kind of Hawke-Keating double act. 
That's right. And to go back to the 1980s, Bob Hawke is remembered for, you know, his for what, what people call his consensus building. He's also remembered for, you know, quite a remarkable political persona. He was very assertive. He had this kind of rough and ready, very Australian masculinity about him. He was also a person of conviction and enormous ability. And that's absolutely something that we covered in one episode in our last series of Belly Getting By, where we talked about Emma's research on Bob Hawke's role in the campaign to save Antarctica from mining. As for Keating, he he has left us with a different legacy. When we talk about that, one of the things that really struck me when I was looking into Keating's management, and I'm using that word very deliberately, of the early 90s recession, is that he tended not to talk so much about global forces outside of his control. He did from time to time. But he had this, in one of his favourite metaphors, and Keating was a great, he was, you know, a great political explainer and a great political speaker. He'd always talk about his pulling the levers of the economy. That was one of his favourite metaphors. And what I see in that is that Keating was setting up this kind of technocratic ideal of the management of the economy by competent professionals, which again is something that we saw flourishing in the Blair Labour governments in the United Kingdom. And that was one of the legacies that Keating left with us. Um, and, and that's one I think we're, we're probably still dealing with. Would that be fair to say? No, I, absolutely. I think um, I was thinking about this in context of the last, you know, last great financial crisis before the one we're living through right now, which was the, the global financial crisis of 2008. And, you know, I mean, Australia, Australia effectively, compared to other, other countries, it sailed through that. Yet the Labour Party, which was in government at the time, didn't manage to either really gain or certainly not to keep any political capital out of that. And I think that that in part is is because of the of what the narrative that Keating set up about how politicians can manage an economy. Because you know during that that during the global financial crisis, there was this kind of mass failure in Australia, especially on the part of the media, to I suppose think comparatively and to think and to really think critically and understand how lightly we got off in that financial crisis. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's something that we can see playing out again, kind of as we speak, where once again, Australia, when it comes to COVID-19, you know, we've undoubtedly avoided the worst case scenarios that a couple of countries are facing, not the least of which is the United States. But we're, we're seeing this kind of almost faux debate about, you know, whether we went too hard, whether we've kind of gone too early and a, and a real inability to kind of reckon with the counterfactuals of, of if we hadn't have done anything. And and I think we've seen, you know, we've seen that play out with a few things, you know, not the least of which when we speak about the 1990s is also Y2K and, and the millennium bug, which is a similar scenario of, you know, impending disaster and people working really incredibly hard to avoid it and then it seeming like you know it was inevitable that we'd always be fine yeah and I think that that's you know I think it comes back to you comes back to a lot of issues but one of them is this sort of relentless focus on the government as economic managers and having everything and every factor under their control and you know that includes predicting the outcomes and so the other thing I was going to say about the 2008 financial crisis is that you know, what followed for Labor was they were blamed for, you know, this this absolutely invented debt and deficit disaster by the Liberal opposition. And then, you know, that's continued until only a few weeks ago, really. And part of the reason why that was possible was because it could be, you know, this, this disaster could be invented and then it could be pinned on Labor and Labor technocrats as a failure of their economic management. 
Okay, so I, I guess, you know, we could put that down as as part of Keating's very mixed legacy in, in Australian politics today. I'm interested also, Chloe, of, of course I'm interested in this, in Keating's foreign policy, in the, in the role that he saw for Australia in the world, because he's, you know, like, like in many areas, Keating's a bit of a different cat when it comes to foreign policy. That's absolutely right. So Keating, he wasn't at all sentimental about our loyalties to either the United Kingdom, which had long since ceased to be a really significant trading partner, or the USA. He saw Australia's future in Asia. He had a really strong focus on the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, better known as APEC. Um, His first international visit was to Indonesia. Most prime ministers previously would go straight to the US or the UK. Touchdown Jakarta, Paul Keating's first overseas destination as prime minister. It's also the first visit to Indonesia by an Australian leader in nearly a decade, since Bob Hawke came here in 1983. And Keating is still talking about the need for Australia to focus on the Asia-Pacific and to shed our role of what he calls the deputy sheriff to the United States in our region. He, he wants Australia to have a meaningful relationship with China that goes just beyond trade. He, he's continually kind of popping up on, on the ABC doing interviews, doing kind of pithy interviews about Australia's role in the world. But he didn't really get very long when he was Prime Minister to attempt this shift, to attempt this pivot to the Asia-Pacific, which I think would have been a dramatic one. And, and we've seen Labor leaders since, not the least of which, of course, is Kevin Rudd, attempt to do the same thing. But but generally, I think, you know, not necessarily fail to manage that shift, but fail to make it a permanent one. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's I think it's really important for us to sort of hone in on the politics of, you know, the domestic politics that surrounds Keating's Prime Ministership. Because while he was hugely ambitious in foreign policy and also in economic reform, and we'll get to Keating's, Keating's like, I think, quite incredibly strong stance on Aboriginal rights shortly, he was bedeviled by really tough domestic politics and really tough challenges from the Liberals. Which, which brings us, I think, quite clearly to the, to the 93 election, which is the first election Keating faces as Prime Minister. And, and it was, am I right in thinking, Chloe, that it was kind of widely expected that he would lose that election? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was, this was an election that was held, you know, in the midst of a recession. Um, the Labor governments had been in power for coming up on 10 years. I, I don't think that there was that many pundits were giving Keating a chance in hell of winning that election. Um, looking into the 1993 election, I've got a note for myself, and it's more of a provocation than a well-thought-out thesis of that election, is that it was the, last, the first and the last traditional class-based election in, a, in modern Australia. And the reason I thought of it that way is because the Liberals did something quite new in their history in appointing as their leader John Hewson, who was a Liberal in much more the mould of a Malcolm Turnbull as opposed to a Conservative like John Howard, um, Tony Abbott or even Scott Morrison. So this is this is John Hewson that, that people might be familiar with for his appearances now as the kind of, you know, the reasoned, as you say, Malcolm Turnbull-like Liberal on, on kind of ABC platforms. Yes, and I think that's I think that's an interesting point in itself because John Hewson has managed to remake his I guess remake his reputation in the many years since he was the Liberal leader. And again, he's kind of to some minds he's emblematic of that throwback democracy that we keep referring to, this 
so-called golden period of liberal centrist government when in fact he was an anomaly within the liberal party and he was an enormous failure as their leader he was he was kind of a joke right his performance during the 93 election campaign was pretty dismal well look i think i think this is probably the moment at which we must play um mine and i'm going to guess your absolute favorite paul keating moment when he stood up in parliament and responded to John Hewson's question about why he had not yet called an election. Order. The, the answer is might, might because I want to do you slowly. I want to do you slowly. No, no. I know. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. No, no. There's got to be a bit of sport in this for all of us. And on the psychological battle stakes, we are stripped down and ready to go. Ready to go. Okay, Chloe, so so as we know, that is pretty much the outcome. Um, why do you think Hewson isn't able to kind of win the the unlosable election for the Liberals? So it's because it's largely because of fightback, which was this lengthy, lengthy policy document. It, it, it outlined the, the Liberals' economic policy going into the election, and that included the introduction of a GST, a goods and services tax, which it's remarkable to think is fairly uncontroversial in Australia today, given that it was, you know, really the centrepiece of political fighting in the mid-1990s. Also, personal income tax cuts and spending cuts. It was very much targeted at the middle class, which is why I'm suggesting that this was a truly class-based election. One of the most famous moments in that election campaign, which is also seen as part of the reason why John Hewson lost that election, is the famous birthday cake interview. That's right. Now, that's the difficult. That's what I'm addressing in, in the question. To, to give you an accurate answer, I need to know exactly what type of cake to, to give a detailed answer. I mean, if it's just a cake from a cake shop that is not presently subject to sales yeah, tax, okay. it will not attract the GST. But isn't, isn't but if it is a cake shop, it's cake from a shop that has sales tax and it's decorated and candles, as you say, that attract sales tax, then, of course, we scrap the sales tax yeah. before the GST okay, be imposed. It's just an example. Hmm. If the answer to a birthday cake is so complex, you do have a problem with the overall GST. Okay, Chloe, so this is, a, you know, another iconic moment, not only in the 93 election campaign, but sort of in recent Australian political history. What do you think that the legacy of, of this particular moment is? You know, I really actually object to the fact that this is held up as an iconic moment in Australian political journalism, as, you know, this is an enormous gotcha moment. Hewson was talking about complex economic policy, and of course, politicians should be skilled explainers of, of economics. But that also, you know, that can also trend towards simplification. I think it's possible to see the birthday, to draw a line from the birthday cake interview to what we have now, which is a situation where journalists will go along with politicians comparing sovereign debt to a credit card. Yeah, I think you're right. And that, and that kind of... Um enduring idea that a journalist can kind of make or break a politician with a single interview or a single question and and the aspiration to do that to be the journalist who does that but I think maybe what sets Keating apart was his kind of refusal to engage in that yeah to to an extent I mean Keating well that's the, the other side of it is that Keating had a gift for explaining complex economic concepts and you know in fact if we think back to that comment about the, the recession we had to have that's something that I think really did him in in the end 
But in this case, he was able to make a meaningful political argument out of what looked like you know, really dry and confusing economic policy. In the 93 election, he was able to quite successfully make the argument that a broad-based consumption tax, like a GST, would disproportionately affect working class voters, which is reason too why I'm suggesting that this was a, was a class-based election. Okay, and, and I think, you know, if we go with this theme of Keating's ability to explain really complex political concepts in a way that assumes a kind of certain level of intelligence and engagement on the part of voters, you know, in a way that is sometimes condescending, but most of the time I think is fairly accessible. Am I right in thinking, Chloe, that we would argue that some of Keating's most important legacy lies in the area of Indigenous rights? Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I think that Keating's work on Indigenous rights, it... It tells us three things. It tells us it tells us about you know the the power. It tells us about the genuine power of political rhetoric when it is used. You know, you know when it's deployed for you know for the good. Um, I think it also tells us about how Keating was able to use political capital for a cause that he truly believed in. But it also does tell us about how that could fall short of the expectations and the demands of Australia's Aboriginal communities. Um, to go back to another, you know, another quotable Keating, we can't go past the Redfern speech, which was given in December 1992, in which Paul Keating, and this, it's so extraordinary to think that a Prime Minister of Australia would stand up and do this today, which, you know, just shows how jaded our politics has become. He stood up and he explicitly acknowledged European responsibility for the murder, the displacement and the dispossession of Aboriginal people. It begins, I think, with an act of recognition. Recognition that it was we who did the dispossessing. And Chloe, Aboriginal rights remained a really big focus of Keating's prime ministership, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. So Keating gave the Redfern speech in December 1992, and that date's important because 1992 was also the year that Eddie Marbo's 10-year court battle to use Australian common law to claim land rights finally succeeded. Eddie Marbo had died in early 1992, and in June the High Court announced a decision in his favour. That was setting a precedent in the courts for Aboriginal land rights. But Keating was determined to enshrine those principles, the principles embodied in native title legislation. This was, you know, this was an extraordinary battle. It put him and his cabinet into a fight with the Liberal, with the Liberal opposition, with the states and with mining companies, that ever-present force in Australian politics. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning that that is is not something that's gone away. Just this week, Rio Tinto has blown up a 46,000-year-old Aboriginal heritage site in Western Australia. So this is something that Keating grappled with, and it's something that is still profoundly affecting Aboriginal communities today. Yes, and Rio Tinto, as I understand it, they were able to do that legally, and that's partly because the legislation, the native title legislation that Keating put through was in some way compromised and it was further compromised through changes that were made by the Howard government in the late 1990s. Um, a decade ago, Keating was calling for native title legislation to be tightened up again. And we are seeing cases like Rio, that, like that Rio Tinto example, and also cases of the, the extinguishment of native, native title claims even today. 
And native title wasn't the only area that he worked on, was it? No. It's really important to be clear that Keating was determined to use the institutions of democracy to push through claims for Aboriginal rights. So that meant the courts, that meant through legislation, and that also meant through the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which in itself was a landmark document in, you know, the, I suppose, incredibly depressing history of Australian recognition of Aboriginal rights and the fact of Aboriginal, of the dispossession of Aboriginal people, because it identified deaths in custody as a social problem that was the result of exclusion and dispossession. So its rhetoric was quite, was quite radical. But at the same time, this is another case where, you know, the, the gains that were made in rhetoric were not actually followed up successfully in, in practice. So while that, while that report was recommending stronger monitoring and reporting systems, um, and schemes for supporting Aboriginal people, these, were slashed, and that was largely because of the context of that that early '90s recession. Yeah, and and have never recovered. I think it's been there have been lots of discussions this week in light of events in the United States about how, in our own country in Australia, there have never been any prosecutions for Aboriginal deaths in custody for the deaths of Aboriginal people at the hands of police since that Royal Commission, you know, several decades ago. That's right. There have been over 400 deaths of Aboriginal people in custody in the years since that report, and there has not been a single arrest or charging of, of a police officer. Yeah, which is a pretty extraordinary thing to think about, especially when we're, you know, we're talking about the Prime Minister who arguably has done or tried to do at least more than any other for, for Aboriginal rights. And yeah, and I think that this is this is an instance where we can see the in some ways justified optimism of the 1990s and Keating's insistence on using the instruments of democracy, the institutions of democracy and the instruments of the state to advance Aboriginal rights, we can see that optimism failing. And I think it's fair to say that that, at the very least, sits at kind of an odd angle to the reality that we're witnessing today, where the law and where government is still used as an instrument of exclusion and oppression. That's right, both both here and in the United States, you know, across the Western world. And if we focus back on the 1990s, I, I think it's, it's arguable to say that the backlash against what Keating was trying to do at the time certainly played a role in the 1996 election. And it is the 1996 election that we will go to in the next instalment of Episode 5 of Barely Getting By, The Long 1990s. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. 